Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Today you will hear James B. Jordan's talk, Hearing the Voice of God, from his audio collection titled, Reading the Bible Again for the First Time. You can find that complete audio collection now on the Canon app. Download from your app store of choice and subscribe. I was asked to speak to you about reading the Bible, reading the Bible again for the first time, or understanding the Bible. You know, that would uh, take the rest of our lives to talk about that subject. So we're going to talk about some aspects of it, and I'll try to give you some pointers and some things to think about uh, along this line. And the first thing I want to talk with you about tonight is... Um, the fact that first and foremost, you don't, you don't want to read the Bible. Uh, you want to hear the Bible. The scriptures tell us over and over again to hear the Word of God. It doesn't say much about reading it, not that you shouldn't read it, but that the more important thing is to hear it. Okay. Now, I want us, <clears throat> I want us to think about hearing the Bible a little bit before we talk about reading it. Uh, so that we understand how God wrote it and why um, it's important for us to think about hearing the Bible. Okay? When was the Bible originally written? A long time ago. Who wrote it? Scribes wrote it. Could most people read and write back in the ancient world? No. Only a very few people could read and write. Those people were called scribes. It wouldn't do you much good to learn how to read and write if you lived in the ancient world because there was next to nothing that you could get hold of to read. Why was that? Well, they didn't have paper in the ancient world. So they wrote on clay tablets. Every now and then they'd get something a little bit closer to what we call paper today, but it was really expensive and hard to get. A lot of times they would write on sheepskin, which is all flattened out. Eh, of course, there's lots of sheep around, but still, how many sheepskins do you get? Or you could get papyrus from Egypt and write on it. You all remember that from school, that there was this stuff, but there wasn't that much of it, and everything had to be copied out by hand, which meant the copies were real expensive. Now, that did not change until just before the Protestant Reformation when our pal Gutenberg invented the printing press and was able to print books. But that still didn't make books cheap because even though you could print, paper was still expensive. It, re it waited until modern manufacturing methods, industry and the Industrial Revolution before paper became cheap. And so it's only been in the last couple of hundred years that books have been cheap enough for ordinary people to get. In the Middle Ages, you know, we as Protestants, uh, Reformation Christians say, oh, back in the Middle Ages they used to chain the Bible up in the church. Well, of course they chained it up in the church. Somebody would steal it if it wasn't changed. You know, can you imagine what you could get for a Bible on eBay back in the Middle Ages? couple of million bucks 
you know, this is a huge book copied out by hand with pretty pictures in it and everything. I mean, if you're going to go to the trouble of copying things out by hand, you decorate it. So that's, that's how we get these illuminated manuscripts. And after all, it's the Bible, so we want it to look nice. It took days to copy one page. And here you have in your church, you've got one copy. So, of course, it's nice that you can go in there and see it. But, of course, it's chained up so people can't get it. Now, that's important for us to think about because that helps us to understand that in the ancient world, in the Bible world, when the Bible was written, there weren't any copies of it for people to have. They might have, you know, they were, of course, they weren't bound like this anyway. They were on individual scrolls, but there weren't lots of copies of those. You as an individual didn't have it, and you didn't know how to read and write. Why should you bother to? There wasn't anything to read and write. There weren't any newspapers. There wasn't any internet. Uh, there was next to nothing to read. You would know enough to make your mark. And you might know enough, if you had cattle or something, to write numbers and keep accounts. But if you had to make a covenant with somebody, let's say, as an Israelite, you wanted to lease land from your neighbor. Well, the two of you were going to town, and you would find a scribe. And, and you would make the arrangement, and the scribe would write it up, and one of the elders would notarize it, and then it would be put the clay tablet that this was written on. You might have a copy, your neighbor might have a copy, but probably not. Why should you have a copy? You can't read it. And instead, it would go and be kept somewhere as an important record. Now, if that's the case, then, and if that's the time that God wrote the Bible, and if that's the way he wrote it, then, God did not intend for people to read it, did he? I mean, he might have created us different kinds of creatures. He might have made paper cheap and easy. Maybe the Industrial Revolution would have happened just before we got out of Egypt so we could all have copies. But God was less interested. I know this is, this is shocking to put it this way, but you've got to think about it. You've got to think, ah, what? What does this mean? That God was not all that interested in everybody being able to read the Bible and have his own copy. What God wanted was for people to hear it, to hear the Bible. That's the only way you could get it back then, unless you were a scribe. If you were an ordinary guy or lady, you had to hear it. Okay. The Bible was designed to be heard. Now, as we think about this fact, there's several things we want to think about. One is, if the Bible was not intended first and foremost for us to read, but first and foremost for us to hear, that tells us a little bit about how it's written, okay? The way it's written. The Bible is not written in prose, like a newspaper article or like a novel by Jane Austen. It's not written that way because it wasn't designed to be read once or twice. It was designed to be heard, and the Bible is written in lines that can be intoned or chanted. Now, our Bibles aren't set up that way, okay? Maybe they're set up in verses. Those verses were not there in the original. I know you know this, that verses and chapters were put in later on to help us navigate our way through the Bible. 
Dividing up the book of Samuel into two books was done later on. All of this stuff is imposed by human beings just to help us navigate our way around the Bible. But originally, it wasn't that way. But how was it? Some of our modern Bibles have the Bible in paragraphs. Maybe your Bible is in paragraphs. Some of them are in verses. But the Bible wasn't written in prose, in paragraphs. It's written in lines. Okay, Lines that begin with the word and, or something similar to the word and, so that you can hear it read out in lines. Makes it easier to memorize. And as you hear it over and over again, you start to get it. Because it was a text that was written to be heard. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And... The earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day. Now. Starting to chant here a little bit. That's risky business. Whoa. You know, in English, it doesn't sound like much. But you know, when I was, when I, being a world traveler, I've been to Russia and I've been to Poland, and I've heard the scripture read in church in those cultures. And it sounds like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, because in those languages you drop on the last word, okay? Now, that's the way languages were, and if you intone the text just a little bit, which is kind of the way we do when we get excited, our voices go up and down a little bit more, you get something that's almost like chanting, but you see, when you hear stuff with a little bit of music involved in it, you remember it better. I'll give you another text. See, these are, these are simple enough texts. You've heard these before. But it's not just the beginning of the Bible that's written in this kind of lines. Uh, many other places are. Just another familiar one. I have to turn there just in case I forget something. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That doesn't have and, but you can tell. So the lines are still there. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The whole Bible is written that way. Okay? It's written in lines. Okay? Because that's the good way to hear it. Okay? Now that tells you at least this much. That as you read the Bible on your own, as you read it out loud to yourself, read it out loud to yourself that way and feel that flow and get into the rhythm of it. Now, y'all are kind of enthusiastic in your singing. Now, if this was a Presbyterian church, I would have to hammer at them to get a little rhythm into the way they read. I don't feel as if I need to go too much into that with you. But there's rhythm in the text, there really is. 
Now, the scripture was designed to be heard repeatedly. You see, if you don't have your own copy, you got to go to synagogue or somewhere and hear the scripture read over and over again. And right away, the, the church before Jesus, the synagogue, they realized that people needed to, to hear the entire scriptures read to them, so they came up with a scheme whereby Sabbath by Sabbath, sections of the Old Testament were read, big hunks of it, because they didn't go home and read it. And throughout church history, on into the Middle Ages and on into the Reformation, you find that a hunk of the Old Testament and a hunk of the Gospels and a hunk of the Pauline letters or some other part of the Bible is read every Sunday. And you may say, well, that's just kind of mechanical. You know, you have this schedule of reading, a church year, a lectionary. Isn't that Catholic or Lutheran or something like that? No, it's just pre-Gutenberg. You want people to hear the Word of God. You want people to learn the Word of God. You want them to hear it over and over and over again. And so you set up a schedule where the one person in the church who knows how to read and write, the pastor, does this, okay? Now, you see, we're kind of in, a, in America, we're used to the Baptists, Baptist-type church system where you don't have a lectionary, Baptist and Presbyterian. No, the pastor has what he's going to preach on. That's probably the only text you hear in the worship service because everybody's going home and they all have a, a daily Bible reading program, which is cool, you know, to live in this modern age as the church matures and develops in history. Now everybody can read the Bible, and that's part of the growth of the church, and we're going to talk about this growth and maturation thing a lot. Okay, so we're going to come back to that, but this is all good. But you see, before 200 years ago, that kind of church didn't make much sense, did it? You wonder why it's only been in the last two or 300 years that churches have developed that didn't have lectionaries, it's because it's only in the past two, three hundred years that most people were literate. There was no point in them being literate before that time. That's a waste of time. To know how to read and write back in the ancient world or in the medieval world or even the early modern world it was like having a PhD in physics. It's kind of complicated. If you ever go back and look at what things looked like, ancient writing, they didn't put spaces between words. They didn't write in the vowels. You just got a string of marks. But if you were, you know, an expert at reading, you knew how to, cite, how to set it out. You knew what vowels went with it. You knew where the, where the divisions were. You knew all that stuff because you were really trained in it. Okay? Uh, reading and writing was more complicated back then, then than it is now, just in terms of how it was written down. No, the scripture was designed to be heard over and over again. Now we lose a little bit, you see, if, you, if you're in a church where you just hear one scripture passage read on Sunday and a preaching on it. We're not hearing it enough anymore. We've gotten so enamored of reading and everybody reading the Bible on their own, we don't hear it enough. But it was designed to be heard and heard over and over again. Now that tells us something else about how the Bible is written. The Bible was not written to be understood the first time you read it, okay? It was designed to be heard over and over again and begin to make sense to you. Now, let me give you something that is not in the Bible, so you'll just have to listen to it, okay? This is a poem by Robert Frost, okay? 
stopping by woods on a snowy evening. I'm going to listen, listen to the poem. Some of you have heard this poem before, and that's good. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind on downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and drear. Yeah, dark and deep. But I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Now you hear that poem once, and what's it about? Eh, guy is driving through the woods, the snow is coming down, he starts to feel, hmm, you know, this is kind of nice and pleasant. He stops, looks at the woods filling up with snow, it's dark. Finally his horse shakes a little bit and says, hey, what's going on, man? But he's enjoying the woods, and it might be nice to just kind of stop right now and just go off in those woods and go to sleep. But Nope, I got duties and obligations to fulfill and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Why does he say that twice? It's only as you think about it and hear it you begin to realize and miles to go before I sleep the second time means and years to go before I die. But if you hear the poem again you might notice some other things there that you didn't notice the first time. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. What house? He, he will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. Or, or will he? Huh. You might ask that question. Depends on whose house it is. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. Wait a minute, what's the darkest evening of the year? It's the winter solstice. What day is that? Real close to December 25th, isn't it? Okay. All of a sudden, as you begin to go over the poem again, you pick up more things. Now, you don't pick up those things because you've got some other text over here that says, hey, dummy, the guy who owns those woods is the Lord, and the church is the house and the village, and of course he's going to see you stopping here, and you're between the woods and frozen lake. You're kind of in between in your life traveling down this journey, and it's baptizing snow on you, and you're thinking about death, because it's Christmas, but hey, this is the day the world changes, and so you move on. Not until I come along and tell you that. <laughs> and that might, even, might not even be entirely what he has in mind. But it's as you go over it and over it that you begin to pick up more things, and the Bible is full of stuff like that. You know, you're reading along in the Bible, and you're just don't going great, and all of a sudden you hit a brick wall, a wall of weird with apologies to Smallville, the wall of weird. Let's, let's hit a brick wall of weird. Here's one in Genesis chapter 32. We're going along so good. All right. Jacob wrestling with the angel. All right, it's about time for Jacob to get his hash settled with the angel. And so verse 24 of Genesis 32 says... Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. <laughs> well, we know it's not just a man. Already, we've 
we already know because we've heard this story before that it's not just a man. And verse 25, and when he saw he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, here, how it's written. And he said, your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel, because you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, the first time you just kind of go past it, you might stop and think, wait a minute, what does that mean? Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. And I have seen God face to face, and my life has been preserved. And the sun rose on him just as he crossed over Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. Now we hit the wall of the weird. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip that is on the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh on the sinew of the hip. Well, now that's obvious, isn't it? Of course they didn't eat it. Well, it would never occur to them to eat that meat. Would it? Would it occur to you? Am I making sense to you? No. Come on, come clean. You know it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know it's just plain flat out weird, okay? <laughs> And there's lots of things like that in the Bible. Because this, this text was not designed to make perfect sense the first time you hear it, the first time you read it. You need to hear it again and again, and it starts to make more and more sense. For instance, God touches him in the socket of his thigh. Why does he touch him there and wound him there? So that Jacob limps. He's limping as he crosses the river. Okay, The sun's coming up a sign of strength and power, and Jacob is limping as he goes across the river, and the sun is coming up behind him. Is this a sign of power? God says, you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Now, I don't think this was a problem for the first people who heard it, but it is for us. What's wrong with that? We assume that when God wrestles with us, his purpose is to defeat our sinfulness and break us down so that we are good Christians, right? And God does do that. And in that case, it should read, you have striven with God and with men, and finally, finally, I have won, Jacob. I have finally won. You're finally in submission to me. I've, you've been fighting me for 97 years, Jacob. That's how many years it is, if you count it up. You've been fighting with me for 97 years, Jacob, but finally I have won. But that's not what it says. It says Jacob won. You have striven and you have won. Okay, Jacob, you've been fighting with me for 97 years. You win. I give up on you, man. I'll see you again when you die for a couple of minutes before you go to hell, and that'll be it. As I give up on you, Jacob, you win. 
We've been fighting for 97 years, and you win, Jacob. Bye. No, that's apparently not what it means. So what does it mean? We've been wrestling all these years, Jacob. And finally, you have won. What does that mean? You know, you, you might have thought you knew what it meant, but as you hear it over and over again, you begin to realize, huh. Then maybe you begin to realize, as you hear this and all the rest of the story, that what it means is, I've been wrestling with you so that you could grow up and be strong, and now you're strong enough to go into the land. Just like God takes us through tough experiences to make us stronger. Whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Well, Nietzsche said that. He meant the wrong thing by it, but there's a certain amount of truth in it. Okay? God both kills us and makes us stronger at the same time by taking us through death and resurrection experiences. Okay, so God says, now that you're strong enough to take the land, I'm going to let you into the promised land now, back into it. And I'm proud of you, son. You're strong. You know, we've been wrestling for years, and now we've wrestled to a draw. You are ready. So here, as a sign of your victory, gives him a limp. What's that about? The Bible is not immediately transparently obvious the first time you read it. Only as you cycle through, you begin to remember, huh, well, Abraham was circumcised around here, and that was his sign of his new calling. Now, right next to the same place, Jacob gets a wound. Now, circumcision, you know, that's painful, but it heals after a couple of days, but this one is permanent. He's never going to be able to walk well again. What does that mean? He can't run. He can't fight. If a sheep runs away out of his flock, he can't run go get it. Imagine a little sheep gambling around out there. Here's Jacob trying to get it. He can't do it anymore. So he's going to have to be able to tell others to do it, like his sons. He will have to rule and exercise dominion through his sons. And the only way that he's going to be able to rule and exercise dominion is by his words. Back before he could spank those boys, now he can't. Back before he could grab those sheep, now he can't. It's by his word alone that he's going to be able to exercise dominion. That's a little bit tougher, a little bit more mature challenge. And it's going to be pretty hard because those boys of his are not going to do what he says. Not for a long time. Well, okay, that's, that's, we've gotten that, or at least I've, I have told you the answers. Uh, we could have read, you know, the book of Genesis through ten times, and you begin to say, yeah, that's right, that's what's going on here. He will have to, you know, no longer will he be able to exercise his dominion by physical activity. He's going to have to command his sons and persuade them. That's much harder. He's going to move from being a kingly ruler to a prophetic ruler by word alone. Just as by word alone God brought the world into existence, so from now on, by word alone, Jacob will rule this world. That makes him more mature, more godlike than he was before. He's maturing. So, okay, the sun rose just as he crosses. So, so this, in a, in a paradoxical way, this limping, which makes him physically weak, is a sign of his true strength. 
Because the sun in the book of Genesis is a symbol of what? Now, as we read Genesis through over and over again, as we hear it, hear it read, over and over again we hear the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. The sun is a ruler. Jacob is a ruler. The night is over and the greater light comes and he's like that. He will rule this new land that he's going into somehow through his sons unless they ruin it for him, which they do. Okay, great. Jacob is mature. He's a ruler. God gives him a limp, a foot wound. Better a foot wound than a head wound, right? I mean, it's what it says in Genesis 3. You know, either you get your heel crushed or your head crushed. Which would you rather have? I'm forgetting my heel crushed, okay? So he's got the heel. He's got the limp. That's a sign of his new strength that he's ruling. Therefore... To this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip that is on the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of the hip. Right? Is that clear? We didn't really need that verse, did we? We would instantly have known that, of course, they wouldn't eat that piece of meat. It's just clear. Or is it? You know, if, if that's not obvious to you, then obviously you're not tracking with the Bible. See, the Bible is tracking along. It's got a, a line of thought here. And that line of thought leads us right straight to, oh yeah, God touched my daddy right here. And so from now on, if I kill a deer or a sheep, I won't eat that muscle because my daddy was touched in the muscle on his body that's similar to the one on that body. That's clear. It doesn't say God commanded the sons of Israel not to do it. It says that they just knew not to do it. Now, be honest. Is it obvious to you? No. Well, then you're just ignorant. It's not obvious to me either. Okay? So I'm ignorant. But this is... How's, how are we not going to become ignorant if we live in the ancient world? We're going to hear it. And hear which means we're going to read it. Now, just, we can't just read this verse over and over again. It's not going to get any clearer if we keep reading <laughs> verse 32 over and over and over again. But sooner or later, if we read Genesis, and maybe if you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those books, over and over again, we begin to see that human beings and animals com combine with one our analogous to one another, okay? And that's why the sacrifices are the way they are. And we begin to see if God touches something, that something becomes holy. Holy things are given to God. And so as a way of respecting that, when we kill an animal, that particular little muscle there is regarded as holy because it reminds us of Jacob, and so we'll set that aside for God and not eat it. Maybe. Now, we got into this by saying, when you're reading along in the Bible, you come across these things that, that's, that are real strange. They're weird. Okay? And it's like hitting a wall. So what do we do? We just read past it to the next verse. See, that's what we do. Which is fine. Okay? It's what you have to do. But the text, that's, 
Why is the Bible this way? If you read a newspaper article, it's not like that. If you read a novel, unless it's by Gene Wolfe, it's not like that, okay? Most novels, you know, they don't hit you all of a sudden with something utterly bizarre, and then you have to get past it, no. But the Bible is that way because the Bible was written to be heard over and over and over again. So we have to remember that when we, when we ourselves read the Bible or study it, to understand that it's not going to be obvious what it means the very first time we read it, or maybe even the 20th time. So that's, that, those are some of the implications of the fact that the Bible was written to be heard, okay, heard. It's written in lines, and when we read it, we need to think about that. Hear those lines, because that will shape sometimes how we hear what's there, what we pick up. And we need to be aware that we need to hear it over and over again. But there's some other things about hearing the Bible that we should meditate on. Uh, this is, there are some important differences between hearing and seeing. Seeing gives us one kind of information. Hearing is completely different. Now, if you would all just close your eyes for a moment. Just close your eyes. I said, close your eyes. Some of you are not closing your eyes. I just want you to close your eyes and now open them back up again. Okay? Now, just imagine you were reading the Bible and you decided you didn't like what you were reading and you just closed your eyes and it's gone. When I close my eyes, it's gone. I don't see it. Now, I want you to close your eyes again. Every eye closed, every head bowed, every eye closed. Close your eyes. Now, close your ears to where you can't hear anything. Eyes are closed, you can't see anything. Ears are closed, you can't hear anything. You can open your eyes again. All right? You see, you can't close your ears. And you know what that means? That means that you cannot stop. You can't stop me. I'm in charge. What hearing has authority, okay? When you listen to somebody, you are yielding authority to that person. You're submitting to authority. I feel good right now because right now I have authority. The only way you can get away from me is to get out of this building at some distance. You may not like the way I look. You can close your eyes and not look at me. But there's nothing you can do about what I'm saying. If you don't like what I'm saying, you just have to keep right on listening to it or else run away. Hearing has that. And in a conversation, we yield authority to each other. That's why it's so rude to interrupt somebody. Okay? You politely listen to what that person says. You allow them to have some authority. Then you expect them to listen to you. That's the way it works. These are, it's just a little bit of authority but it's still some authority. When you read the Bible, the Bible does not come to you with authority. It's like reading anything else. Now, it can if you tell yourself, okay, this is the Word of God, I'm reading it. You have to tell yourself that. When you hear the Scripture read out loud, inescapably it comes with some authority because it's coming in through your ear. That's the difference between your ear and your eye. 
Your eye, you are in control of what you see. Your ear, you're not in as much control. Another distinction between hearing and seeing is that reading is an isolated act. When you, you read the Bible, you're alone. It's just you and the Bible. But when you hear it, you are with other people. Hearing creates community. Reading creates isolation. Now, there's anything wrong with reading all by yourself, okay? But it is a solitary act. And people who never get together with other people and never hear the word read or preached, those are the kind of people who can't get along with anybody else, right? <laughs> because gradually they become hyper-individual. Whereas hearing creates community. It does. It may be a community that's at war with itself. If I get up here and say, this kind of singing is terrible. Okay, some of you would say, you're right, it is. And others would say, oh no. And then we'd have a fight. But it'd be a community that's fighting with itself because you'd all heard the same thing. And I'm not saying that. Okay. But hearing is social. It makes the church come into existence. So God wants his word to be heard because when you hear it, it comes with authority. And when you hear it, it creates community. And just reading it by yourself, it doesn't necessarily have authority and it doesn't have community. Does it? You following me, tracking me here? Deep stuff. We've got one more even deeper thing we have to say about it. And that is, what goes through your eye is impersonal. It's only your eye was made by God for science, for evaluating the world of things. With my eye, I see things. Like this thing here on the front row here. It's just a thing. It's dressed a certain way, it's masculine, or male rather. Masculine is, has to do with nouns, male has to do with living things. It's a male, it's dressed a certain way, like some type of priest. And it's bald, mostly. <laughs> and there are other things I can say, but you know what? I don't know anything about him as a person by looking at him. Nothing, except that well, I don't really know what his personality is like at all. It's only when he talks and I hear him that I hear anything about a person. It is only through the ear that you learn about persons. You look at me and you say, he has a beard. That's because he's a hippie. <laughs> well, maybe that's not why I have a beard. Maybe I have a beard because I have a terrible rash on my face and so to protect your eyes from the horror of seeing me as I really am, I grew this gracious beard to cover it up. Maybe I have a beard because my wife wants me to have a beard. Maybe I have a beard because I'm just vain and I want to have a beard. But I can guarantee you it's not because I'm a hippie. Okay? <laughs> There's any number of reasons why I might look the way I do. But when I begin to talk, you begin to learn things about me. 
you begin to learn if I'm sarcastic and ugly. You can tell if I'm in a good mood or a bad mood. At least your wife can usually tell. Oh, pouting again, huh? I'm not pouting. I'm not pouting. Oh, yeah, your voice tells everybody all about you. When you hear the Word of God out loud, you hear the voice of God and you become acquainted with the person of God. If you don't hear it out loud, you don't get the person. That's why scholarship is dangerous. That's why theological seminaries are dangerous. That's why an academic approach to the Bible is dangerous. Because it's all silent and the Bible becomes a thing. A thing that we analyze. Now I do this for a living. So I can tell you this is a danger. Okay, And so it's, it's okay to analyze the Bible. But be careful. The Bible can become a thing instead of the voice of God that I'm hearing. And it's a complex voice. I mean, God has many voices. He's an infinite voice. He has richness in his voice. He has a voice that's like the Song of Solomon and a voice that's like Psalm 6 and a voice that's like the book of Revelation. But it's all God's voice and it shows you his person. Because we are supposed to have a personal relationship with God, not just a bunch of ideas about God. And so hearing is important, okay? Hearing has authority, the authority of God. Hearing creates a community. Hearing reveals persons. Seeing does not. Seeing is what I'm in control of. I have dominion over the world. It's what God said to Adam and Eve, take dominion. And my eye is the organ of dominion. My ear is the organ of submission, primarily. It's, but it's not just that, it's that there are certain words that are repeated over and over and over and over again, where you might want some diversity. And in fact, usually when we translate the Bible, we start trying to change those words and give some diversity in our English, which confuses us, because it'd be nice to know it's the same word being used each time. No, it's written in a kind of a particular scribal language which is not really all that unusual. Uh, these are a particular group of people, those few people who know how to read and write, and they write it in a written language that's designed to be kind of chanted out loud. That's not the same as ordinary talking Hebrew. It's similar enough if you know ordinary talking Hebrew, what we call a parole language, P-A-R-O-L-E. If you know that kind of Hebrew, you can certainly understand the Bible when it's read out loud. But just as Shakespeare doesn't sound like conversational English in the Elizabethan age, neither is the Bible written in conversational Hebrew of the Old Testament age. Okay? It's written at a little bit higher level than that, and it's written in a, a somewhat more restricted language, somewhat more technical. So there are certain technical words that recur throughout. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it says something about how we translate the Bible. Some old, older translations like the King James or maybe the New King James are more careful in, in this regard than some of our modern easier-to-read versions. Now, I think it's nice to have an easier-to-read version like the New, New International Version to start out with, read sometimes. 
If you really want to understand the Bible, you've got to set that aside and get yourself something that's a little bit more strict that you can read out loud and hear. But another thing this means is that the Bible was written, it assumes that there is a class of professional teachers and guides to help you understand it. That was true in, back in Israel's day. God, when God wrote the Bible, most people couldn't read it. Most people couldn't study it on their own. But God wrote it in a, in a way that assumes that there are some people who really study this a lot and who help you understand it. Now, they don't have absolute authority, okay? These teachers and preachers. Well, I do, but most don't. No, that was just a joke now. Don't be, un don't be unhappy. But they do act as guides. And see, it, um, as Americans, we don't really want to, we don't like that idea so much. You know? Do I really need somebody to help me? Yeah, you do. Because you're busy all day long doing other things. I mean, all this man does is study the Bible all day long. Well, not really. But he is supposed to know more than you do, and he does. He's going to learn some Hebrew. He's going to learn some Greek. He's going to get at home in this temple language. He's going to spend time getting real familiar with it, and then he can help you to understand it. The Bible was not written for you to read by yourself. It was written for you to read in community hearing it with other people. And it was written for you to read with the help of an expert. Not a priest, but at least an expert. You know, somebody that's one inch higher. Okay? It, it assumes that. Sorry. That's kind of offensive to modern people. But it's a fact. If you're going to really read the Bible, you want to be with other people, you want to have the help of some experts, it's how God set it up. You say, well, what if the expert misleads me? Well, what if you mislead yourself? <laughs> you know, none of us are ever going to get it absolutely right. Here, if you want to learn Hebrew, you can. And then when you want to know what this particular Hebrew word means here in the Bible, what are you going to do? You're going to look it up in a Hebrew dictionary. And who wrote that? Some expert who's got a Ph.D. in Northwest Semitic languages. Well, can you trust him? Well, I don't know. He might be a liberal. He might be Catholic. He might be a Presbyterian. Who knows what he is? Where does it stop? At some point, there are some people with a little bit more knowledge than you have. There's even people with more knowledge than I have. And I have to rely on them. In fact, everything I do, I got from somebody else. So the Bible's written with that in mind. The newspaper isn't. Look, when you read the newspaper, you don't need anybody to help you read it. Now, if you really think that those documents Dan Rather showed on TV are authentic, you do need some help. <laughs> but, and I'm not saying who I'm voting for, but I am saying, look, fake is fake, all right? We can tell that, but even if Dan doesn't want to believe it, all right? But for the most part, Though that, that literature is not written with the assumption that you will have a guide. The Bible is written with the assumption that you'll have a, a guide. Okay. And that people who are guides themselves are learning from others who taught them. Okay. Because in Israel, all of these books, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, were placed 
in the tabernacle. And they were taught by the priests, assisted by the Levites. Malachi says the lips of a priest teach knowledge. And men come to him for instruction. Assisting them were the Levites who were scattered, who were placed in the towns as pastors of local churches or synagogues back in the days of Deuteronomy. They were learning from the priests. Those were the only, mostly the only people who could read and write, probably maybe a few professionals who weren't Levites. But the Levites were the scribal tribe. Okay, these are the people who are going to guide you. They talk among themselves. They have greater expertise. This is put in the temple. And as, as the books of the Old Testament were written, it was understood that this was temple literature. The new books were put in the temple. Sometimes we have the idea that you know, somebody wrote the book of Esther and Esther was so cool that somebody said, you know what, I think maybe this is divinely inspired. And they said, you know what, maybe we should add it to the Old Testament. Whoa, maybe we should. And then they debated it for a while and eventually they put it in. Meanwhile, the book of Judith was written and people said, you know, that's Judith, she's a pretty tough babe, you know, killing, chopping off the head of, you know, enemy there and saving the little virginal town of Bethulia, means virgin. Ever read the book of Judith? Well, it's a neat story. You should read it one of these days. Maybe we should put it in the Bible. No, 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 maybe it shouldn't go in the Bible. Okay, we'll put it in the Apocrypha. Okay. <laughs> No, uh-uh. The book of Esther is written full of allusions to the temple. All kinds of stuff that's in that book is right out of the temple. The way the palace is described, the fact that the king has got his own holy of holies, anybody who goes in there is going to be killed. He's got a little garden out there, outside. It's full of allusions to the earlier parts of the Bible. It's written as Bible by somebody trained in this tradition of writing and thinking to be added in. Same with the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is full of all these allusions to the temple and to the land because it pictures the Lord and Israel. So it's not just some bunch of love poetry that wound up in the Bible. It's written from the beginning as a dream. The woman is dreaming the messianic dream. And as she dreams, Solomon becomes more than Solomon. He becomes the very temple himself. Because the whole book of, of, uh, of Song of Solomon is a dream but it's written in temple language. So when the, when the Gospels come along, they are written that way. These are educated, trained men. This wasn't popular literature that found its way into the Bible. To some extent, everybody involved in writing it was self-consciously in this tradition, trained this way. We need to bear that in mind as we read it to... Uh, to realize that it's written a certain way, it was to be heard, uh, and it assumes some guides. Now there's one last thing to say about hearing the Word. Okay, Hearing the Word means you need, you need, you need a teacher. Okay? You need somebody who's got some training in that tradition. Now, unfortunately, you can go to seminary today and not learn much about that tradition. Well, not, not get much Bible, kind of get everything else but the Bible when you go to seminary, get apologetics, church history, this, that, and the other. But you do get some help. Okay, But you want that. You want at least someone to help you read it, even if you don't always agree with them. And the final thing about hearing the Bible is that God blesses the Scripture, the learning of the Scripture, He blesses at the table. 
The primary place where you hear the Bible and begin to understand it is when you're gathered at the table. That's where Jesus meets with us. If you would hear His voice, you need to be where He is. And in a special way, He meets with us at His table. It's not just that we get together with some random other people to hear the Bible and talk about it with each other and get that oral conversation going. Especially here when we come as the baptized community who have been all sprinkled with or drenched or immersed in the same water. And, hey, I don't know. Hey, uh, but we're all at the same table here. We're all sitting around this table eating the food, having a conversation. Jesus is here through the mouth of the pastor and the mouth of other people who are sharing. He's talking to us in this prophetic group. We're all prophets, right? And what it says in Acts 2, you're all prophets. So when you start talking about the Bible and sharing it with yourselves, that's a prophetic conversation. The Spirit is moving in that conversation. If it's in the church and at the table, even if the Spirit moves somebody to say something stupid, that's just so that somebody else will say, wait a minute, that's stupid, and correct them. Okay? That's a prophetic meeting. I'm serious. <clears throat> and that's how the Bible comes alive to us, personal hearing context at the table. And it's that place where we get the secret knowledge. Okay? Everybody in the world wants the secret knowledge. Well, this is the Bible is the secret knowledge. That's the last thing I want to say by way of introduction in terms of reading it. It's not like a newspaper article. It's not like a novel. The Bible is secret knowledge. You have to be initiated into the mysteries in order to get the secret knowledge that's here. Isn't that cool? Hey, I'm for it. Except it sounds kind of like some kind of mystery cult religion. Well, this is the true mystery cult religion. Because the mystery is revealed in here. Isn't that right? What, what, now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about what Jesus means when he's talking about the parables. The whole Bible is like a parable. You can read it and completely misunderstand it. Just as Jesus says, I'm telling these parables, and it's just going to confuse them. But you guys over here, if you think about it, it will make you wise. Now, there's a big mistake about the parables out there. People say the parables are simple stories that Jesus told to kind of illustrate basic points. No, the parables are paradoxical, difficult stories. If they only look simple. <laughs> when you start looking at them, you find weird stuff. And then, whoa, wait a minute. But <clears throat> if you have been initiated into the true community and you're at the table and you're with the saints and the Spirit is working... As you work through those parables and the whole Bible, because this is that's just a model of what the whole Bible is like, you will begin to get wisdom. If you're not there, you'll begin to get confused. Now that's where liberalism comes from. Liberalism comes from guys in universities studying the Bible. They're not at the table. They don't care about their baptism. They're not with ordinary folks. They don't sit down with ordinary folks and talk about the Bible because the most ordinary person in this room is occasionally going to have an insight the rest of us need to hear. Maybe even more insights than some of the rest of us need to hear. You never know. I'll tell you a story about that in a second. But this is the secret knowledge. It's a mystery that's been revealed. 
Jehovah's Witnesses can read the Bible and never get it. We can. But only if we're here. Only if we're hearing it. Only if we're reading it in community. Only if we get a little bit of guidance from those who are ahead of us in the knowledge or, or who have a special calling. So those are the things I wanted to talk about, first of all, uh, with you, is this context of hearing, sharing, at the table, in the church, because this is a priestly book. Uh, and that's, uh, those are things we need to bear in mind. I was going to tell you a story a number of years ago. I was actually le lecturing on these same topics at uh, Providence Reformed Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Jeff Myers Church. Some of you probably met or heard Jeff. Well, I was, I was illustrating with uh, clean and unclean food, and I talked about how the uh, unclean animals are kind of like the serpent. They travel on their belly and eat dirt. God cursed the serpent to travel on his belly and eat dirt. And the unclean animals don't have shoes, you see. They just walk on their soft feet right in the dirt. And they eat carrion and other stuff that's down there. And uh, the serpent eats dirt. And I talked about that for a while. And after I was done, a 10-year-old girl came up and said, Mr. Jordan, and I said, yes, dear. And she said, well, you were saying that man is made of dust, right? And I said, yes. Well, if the serpent eats dust, does that mean that he eats people? I said, oh. <clears throat> well, of, of course, I knew that truth already. Uh, I, I've thought about that before, but yes, you're right, dear. No, of course, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that before. But of course, the devil, like a roaring lion, seeks whom he may devour. And if the serpent eats dust, then one of the things that's being said there in Genesis 3 is that if you don't watch out, the devil will eat you up and you go to hell. Uh, you either get into the body of Christ or you get into the body of the serpent. Okay, which do you want to be in? Okay, Jesus will eat you. For if you're neither, neither hot nor cold, he'll spit you out of your mouth, out of his mouth. So you get into the body of Christ using that symbolism. Or the devil will eat you since you're made of dust, and to dust you shall return. Watch out. I never thought about that before, but she did. So I've stolen that and used it many times since. But I've always tried to give credit. But that's another part of how you never know when the hearing of the Word of God and the hearing about the Word of God sparks thoughts from everybody in the prophetic community. And so, you know, before we start talking about, you know, from now on it's going to be you and your Bible and how you read your Bible. But before we do that, we need to talk about this context and this hearing. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ podcast. That was James Jordan's talk from his audio collection, Reading the Bible Again for the First Time. It's now available on the Canon app, as we recently partnered with American Vision to have all of their audio and video products and audiobooks coming soon. Find it on the Canon app, download and subscribe today.